hey, this morning, you're going to get to hear from Corey Bricks, our children's minister, as he's going to kind of share what this VBS week is going to be with you. And I know no better way to start that than to watch some VeggieTales. So turn your attention to the screens. Thanks, Brock. We're going to knock your wall down. By walking around in circles? Yes. It's not because we're crazy or anything. Our God told us to do it this way. Oh, that's a great idea. You go ahead and keep walking. Keep walking. But you won't knock down our wall, keep walking. But she isn't gonna fall, it's plain to see. Your brains are very small to think walking. We'll be knocking down our wall. You silly little pinkham, you silly little bees. You think that walking around will bring this city to its knees? The awesome powers of this wall we've clearly demonstrated. Ah! But down here in the hot, hot sun, perhaps you're dehydrated? <laughs> Who doesn't love some VeggieTales? How many of y'all probably have watched every single VeggieTale? Let's be honest, come on, or a lot of them. Yes, they are really fun, entertaining. They kind of tell the story, the main point. Now, they're not 100% biblically accurate. If you watch the rest of that video, you would see where they were throwing slushes, the people of Jericho at the Israelites. I don't believe that happened in Scripture, okay? But it was a lot of fun. As Eric said, my name is Corey Bricks. I'm the children's minister here. And Vacation Bible School starts tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. So hopefully the kids uh, are ready to come and all the volunteers. We have a lot of you here as well. Our theme is called Clash of Kingdoms, the Battles of the Bible. Now, I hope the kids this week will learn about God's power. But through that, they will also learn about his love. And so this morning, I pray the same thing, that God will open your heart and that you can see not just his power, but his love for you. And we're going to be reading a lot of scripture, so I just want to put that out there. So make sure if you have your scripture, your Bible ready, if you have the church app, we're going to read. I'm going to read fast, so just be prepared. Hang on, buckle your seatbelt. But our theme, like I said, is taken off of Clash of Clans. Now, you, maybe you played that game on your phone or an app or on the computer. Um, it's a game that's not a normal, typical war game. It's a kind of a game where you have to do building strategy. You have to have strategizing and planning things. You have to go and collect um, gold or resources, build up your army so you can go and, and make your own little camp, set it up, build up walls and fortress and, and set it up. When other people try to attack it, your wall and stuff doesn't fall down. And so that's kind of what our theme is built off of. But that game is kind of fun, challenging. And one thing that's kind of frustrating, though, is that that game has lots of obstacles. When you get your little first land or property, you get this land with trees and rocks and all these things in your way, and you have to remove them. And there's all these people trying to attack you and stuff like that, and so there are some challenges that happen. Now, when you think about it, that's true about life. We all have obstacles. We all have frustrations. We all have pain that happens in our life. Sometimes we have financial issues, relationship issues, whatever it might be, sin issues. We all struggle with those things from time to time. And it's frustrating, but if we think about it, these Bible stories we're going to go through this morning will help us with these obstacles we have to deal with. The Israelites, God's chosen people, they were wandering around the desert for 40 years, and all of a sudden God says, hey, 
Joshua, it's time for us to go into the promised land. But the first obstacle you have is this really, really big one called Jericho. So let's turn to our Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, and this is going to be our first battle that we're going to be talking about. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. And here we go. Here we go. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with, with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its mighty men. He goes, March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, when you hear them sound a long blast in the uh, trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, and every man straight in. So the Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests, the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guards marched ahead of the, of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not even say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So, the, so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. That was day one. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. Talk about a war strategy right there. Very interesting. So on the seventh day, they got up on the daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies. But keep away from the devoted things so that while not bring their own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring disaster on it. All the silver, gold, and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and it must go into his treasury. So when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Now that's kind of a very, very different type of way to attack, right? Very unique. The Israelites were nomads. So the first thing we can learn is that God can overcome any obstacle. There were nomads that went around the desert for 40 years. Like I already said, God finally says, Joshua... Now it's time to go. It's time to attack Jericho. But he didn't just do it with weapons. Like, they don't have cruise missiles or bombs like we do today. Instead, he goes, just march around it once for six days. And on the seventh day, do it seven times. 
Let's really scare them a little bit, right? What are these crazy people doing? You know, bring the city down. I almost started singing VeggieTales, all right? But uh, the Israelites didn't need man-made weapons to knock it down. All they needed was God. God stood up, told them how to do it, used some violence, of, of, uh, not with violence, but with just marching and yelling and ram's horns, and the wall fell down. So through this story, we can also learn to trust God to help us overcome our obstacles. Thankfully, we can't overcome these obstacles without the use of gold or diamonds or an app store to kind of skip in like the game of Clash of Clans. You can spend money on those things. But God does specialize in overcoming obstacles. He's been doing it from time and time again, from history and history. In our lives, we have these obstacles. Some of them, maybe when you were a little kid, you were this tall. I don't know if you remember it, but it was this tall. And there was this sign that said you had to be this tall to ride the ride. Don't you hate that sign? When you were a little kid, all of a sudden you grew up. Great, right? Sometimes obstacles can be people that frustrate us. Sometimes they can be things that get in our way. But sometimes obstacles require a little extra help. And so obstacles are always frustrating, and they make you want to quit. But when we see frustration, you know what God sees? He sees a chance for him to show his power to us and to the world. He can break that ice with a new friend or a friend who's fallen away. He can remove those physical or mental or those emotional obstacles that happen in our lives and that keeps us from becoming who God wants us to be. He can knock those walls down like Jericho because God is mightier than any army or any wall. He's mightier than any person or anything. So if you have obstacles, don't despair. What you need to do is don't quit, but pray and let God take the lead in tearing down our walls. See, there's nothing in sports. I love telling sports stories, so if you like those, you're going to hear some. But there's nothing more thrilling than sitting at the edge of your seat in the end of a game. It could be a football game where the last two minutes where Patrick Mahomes has the ball and he's trying to win the last the touchdown at the very end. Or it could be Steph Curry who gets the basketball and takes a long distance three-point shot at the buzzer. It either goes in or goes out and they have a chance to win. Those are exciting moments. There's one exciting moment that I remember growing up when I was in high school. It was in 1992. I'm kind of aging myself now. But it was in the NCAA basketball tournament. It was Duke versus Kentucky. There were some big basketball teams right then. Kentucky was ahead by one point in the, state, in, in the national semifinals game. There was only 1.9 seconds left, and Duke had the ball all the way at the other end of the court. They hurled this long pass, and this guy named Christian Leitner grabs the ball, fakes one way, takes the bounce, turns, shoots, swish, wins the game. Duke fans go crazy. Kentucky, they would like for everyone to forget, right, and just move on. It was exciting. It was fun. But if there's lots of people in sports where they make the, take those shots and they miss. We kind of forget that from time to time. We usually remember the exciting moments where someone wins the game at the very end. But could you imagine in that game, let's say the sports, the person running the clock decides to give them three or four more seconds, just kind of hold the clock and keep it still? Now, obviously, nowadays we know the rules doesn't happen. The referee will get the old stopwatch out, get behind the thing and say, nope, they didn't get off in time, game over. But let's just say the rules didn't allow that to happen. And so they throw the long court pass. The guy gets it. He realizes the clock's not going, still not going. He drives up and makes a slam dunk or layup. I mean, that wouldn't be fair, would it, to give them more extended time. 
Well, this next battle kind of talks about extended time. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. Now, bear with me. There's a lot of names in here, so just I'm going to read fast. Here we go. Now, Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace within Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Joham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lashith, and Debar, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. I'm going to pause there for a second. So Gibeon was a city that should have probably been taken out on their way to the promised land. But they saw how strong Israel was, so they made peace with them, made a treaty with them. These five other countries said, that's not fair. We should be against Israel. So let's go attack this other city. So then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, I already said them, they went to attack them. Verse 6, the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. That's great news. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going to Beth Horon and cutting them down to the valley of Ezekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Ezekah, the Lord hurled large, this is interesting, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstorms that were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Okay, just pause there. God's like, okay, great. Israel, you guys are great soldiers. You go and defeat someone, but I'm going to show you something even better. Boom. I'm going to throw some hailstones down on them and start defeating even more of them than what they did with the sword. But here's the rest of it. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still. And the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There was never a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. What an interesting battle. That's not fair. If you think about how battles happen in the Old Testament times, as you would go and you fight during the daytime, when it got dark, you would go back to your camp, regroup, eat, sleep, you know, get your forces back together and go back and attack the next day. But Joshua's like, God, I need some help. We're already pursuing them. They're fleeing for their life. Let's go get them. Let's, let's show our enemies who's really in charge. And so he prays and asks God to stop the sun from going down. And God listens. That's amazing to think about that. There's actually other cultures that talked about how the sun didn't go down, not just in the Bible, if you're kind of wondering about that. But it only happened once. We learn here that God can do miracles when we need help. When we have those extraordinary circumstances that come into our life, he answers those in ways that we can't explain it. 
He does it to show us and to show other people that he is truly powerful and also he's loving. Many people look at the Bible and say, oh, those are just stories. Those are, those are so cute, but those really can't be explained through science or reason, so I don't believe them. I don't believe in a worldwide flood. I don't believe in the sun standing still or the Red Sea being parted. That just can't happen. They don't believe it. But we can also believe, we can learn to trust God to do amazing things. There's other people that may say, well, that's the Bible. Those miracles happened back then, but I don't really see that they happen today like that. But the longer you live and have faith in God, the more you will see that those two statements are false. Because God did miracles then, and he still does miracles today. God provides healing for those who are sick with deadly illnesses, and there's no way that medical um, treatment can take care of them. God can provide money for those who are uh, financially struggling or ministries that are struggling, and God provides financial help to them. Sometimes God uses people to be that miracle. So church, listen up. When God prompts you to do something, be his hands and feet because he's asking you to do a miracle today or tomorrow for other people. Maybe he's asking you to give someone a gift or go visit someone and call on them and see how they're doing. Because when we make ourselves available, God can use us to be a miracle for someone else. He uses us. But sometimes God does them on his own. He speaks to an unbeliever or one of those people who were doubting him before and changes their heart and melts it so that they can become a more kinder and loving person. He heals those sick, like I already said before. But someday we all will be faced with an obstacle or, a, or an issue in our life that needs help. What we need to do is we need to pray to God to step in and to do a miracle. Believe in God that he can do miracles. If you expect to see one, you probably will. Now, in most sporting games, they want it to be fair, right? So in basketball, it's five on five. Same amount of players on each team. Now, softball, baseball, 99. Football, soccer, 11 v 11, right? Now, in football, now if there's, or unless you play eight-man football around here, there are some of those schools around here. But in football, if you have an extra player on the field, you usually see a, a little yellow hanky on the ground, right? There's a penalty. Too many men on the field against that team. It's not fair. Now, in hockey, there's six players. You have the goalie and five people on the ice. Now, sometimes in hockey, you have a player who just decides he wants to punch somebody or hook them or slash them with the stick, whatever it might be, and they get a penalty, right? They get sent into the penalty box, and now you have an, a man advantage called the power play. And they do that because someone did something wrong, and now this other team should have a chance to have a better chance of scoring a goal. And it makes it a little unfair. Now, in the Clash of Clans game, you try to build up your resources, you try to build up your army so that you can go and attack these other people and try to win and try to earn more trophies for your thing. Now, the book of Judges, chapter 7, our third story is going to come out of, Gideon is now the leader, and he's the Israelite leader, and he goes, and they're getting ready to attack the Midianites. And he calls out to all the land, I need some soldiers to help me fight these Midianites. 32,000 men show up and are ready to fight. And then let's read on in, in verse 1 of chapter 7. Let's see what happens. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, 
The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands. What, time out? Too many? How's that fair? That's not cool. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Okay, that's why. And announce, him, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left because they were afraid. Well, 10,000 remained. Okay, now there's 10,000. That's a decent-sized army. Let's see what happens. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them there for you there. If I say this one should go with you, then he should go. But if I say this one should leave, shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the possessions and the trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay, before, lay down below them in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, he says, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So God says, this is what you're going to do. Take 300 men, and you're going to defeat the Midianites. That number doesn't sound really smart to me, but that's what God says. And he says, and if you're worried about it, go on down to the camp and listen, and you'll be encouraged. So he and Pura, his servant, starting, went, down to the, went down to the outpost of the camp. Verse 12, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no be counted than the sand on the seashore. So Gideon arrived just as the man was telling a friend his dream. He said, I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and his interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned back to camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So dividing the 300 men into three different companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and his 300 men went with him at the reach of the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had getting ready to change the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. And they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. The 300, trump, uh, 300 trumpets sounded. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp, this is interesting, to turn on each other with their swords. There's the end of that story. So did the, did the Israelites with 300 men even have to get out there and, and kill anybody? No. 
They didn't. God is all we need to give us victory. God first gave them 32,000 men. That's too many. You're going to brag about this victory whenever you get done with it. So you have 10,000, still too many. I think 300 sounds better. Take 300 men. Don't even carry a sword. Just wear a horn and a torch, and you're going to win this battle over this huge valley of all these people. Amazing. God shows up, and God was the only person that they needed to help them win this battle. God makes it very clear in this victory that he is for us, and nothing can defeat us. We learn that we can rely on God to solve our problems. There's a lot of people in our country, in our culture today, that says, you Christians need to be silent. I don't need to know how I should live my life. I want to live my life my own way. Don't tell me what God's standard is because my standard's my own way. You guys do your own thing, that's fine, right? You just be quiet because I don't want to live that way. Regardless of what they believe, God is still in control. It doesn't change it, does it? God is still the Lord of all creation. And he loves everyone. He even loves those who want us to be quiet and are skeptics. God wants us to stand up for our faith, to continue to encourage a friend to come to church from years and years and years. He wants us to encourage our friends at school, to encourage people at work, our family members, our friends wherever we're at, our teammates on the sporting team. He wants us to stand up for our faith and to show them God's love. Not his judgment, but his love. Why? Because God can transform the hearts of those who despise him, who don't even want to follow him. He can change those people. You see, God has worked for each and every one of us. He has challenges that will test us and test our faith. And the question is, are you ready to follow him into battle? Have you ever had a plan that just seemed to kind of go weird? Have you ever had like a friend or maybe a spouse where you want to give them a nice little party or a special gift? And you have your little kids, and maybe you go and help them, parents, and you take them to go get all the stuff, but you kind of surprise your spouse, and before you're getting ready to announce it, the little kid just blurts out, he got you a new shirt, or a ring, or a new car. That'd be really awesome. Honey, I'm just kidding. Um, But anyway, he ruined the surprise. Or maybe you're one of those unlucky families where you plan a beach trip, all right? You got all the travel expenses things ready, lined up to go. You've got the place you're going to stay. You've got a new swimsuit. You've got all the toys that you're going to play at the beach. And then a couple days before you get ready to leave, bam, a hurricane's coming to your beach. Unlucky, right? There's times in our lives that we just have things that are out of our control. We can't help a little kid who blurts out those things sometimes, right? We can't help the weather But what we can help is what God has given each and every one of us, free will. He's given us each an ability and an opportunity to choose where we put certain things in our lives. What do I want to make priority in my life? Do I want to put God first or other things first? Do I want to put attending church and being part of a community of faith up here or just down here? We get to make that choice, right? The Israelites had that choice as well. Time and time again, they were shown that God had power and his love for them. 
He would heal them. He would take care of them. He would give them victory over these enemies in weird battle stories and weird ways. But time and time again, they would turn to their own ways and to their own sin and, and other things around them. And so look with me in 1 Samuel. This is our last Bible stories that we're going to be talking about. There's two, ver- two main chunks of Scripture we're going to look at. 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and at the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? But why? They're asking, Why, God? We're your chosen people. Why are we losing? They said, Then they're like, Okay, well, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go down with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came to the camp, all of Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What is all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. So they started whining here. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Then someone says, Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30 thousand foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That's not a cute little story about God's victory. That's another defeat. The Israelites were rebellious. They decided to do their own thing and to turn their own ways. And they didn't really ask for God's help. They thought, okay, well, maybe we'll bring in this holy ark of the covenant to come help save us for this next battle. But it's just a thing. It's not God. So they started worshiping things instead of worshiping God. And so they lost the battle. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. And they lost their two leaders. And once Eli, the high priest, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, heard about about his two sons being killed, guess what happened to him? He falls over backwards and dies as well. They lose the high priest. But God had a plan. God had a way to sell the score to the Philistines. He calls a man named Samuel to come in and be the next high priest. So here's our last section. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. It says, It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods, and the Asherahs, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bells and Asherahs and served the Lord only. Those are idols, if you're wondering what those mean. Then Samuel said, Assemble all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and, they were confe- and there they confessed. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. When Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to, to engage Israel into battle. But that day the Lord thundered, pretty cool, I like that, with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtered them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord saved us, or helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade the Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Victory, you see in this last one, starts with us obeying God. See, there was nothing wrong with the Israelites at that time. They were just trying to protect their own land, their own property, their own resources. And the Philistines kept coming in and stealing it. But their heart was not right. Their heart was not connected to God. They started doing their own thing and living their own way. And so the Israelites didn't put God first. God wanted them to depend on him alone. Because he wanted them to remember all the great stories of Samson and Gideon and how he helped him with Jericho and all those battles that he helped him with. When the Israelites didn't go into battle with God, they lost. And so they were were reminded that they needed to learn to rely on God to win the victory. And just like we have to rely on God for our victories. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln right before the Civil War and he's preparing for battle. And at the White House, he goes and One of his advisors makes a statement and says, we need to stop and we need to ask God to go into battle with us. And Abraham Lincoln says, no. Do not pray that God goes with us. Pray that we go with God. See, God doesn't follow us. We follow God. We need to submit and make Jesus Lord and Savior of our own lives. And there, that's when we start to follow his lead. The Philistines defeated the Israelites in battle and took away the Ark of the Covenant and all that thing. But if you know the rest of the story, before um, Samuel becomes a leader, God actually caused a curse on those Philistines. When the Ark of the Covenant was captured, he made those people sick in that town. So they moved it to another town and made them sick. And they moved it to another town, and they got so sick, and they're like, you know what? You guys can just have your Ark back. We don't want it. Because God wants them to have victory when they trust in him. And God wants you to have victory in your battles as well. So today as we conclude, do you need to put your trust in God? Do you need to make him Lord and Savior of your life? We witnessed some guys and girls get up there and do that this morning. Do you need to believe in miracles that God can do them in your life? Maybe you need to rely fully on God and confess like the Israelites had to. Confess their sins and repent and give them to God and turn away from those sins. Do you need to follow him into into your, let him follow you into your life so that you can receive victory? The VBS themed verse is right up here on the screen. It says, 
Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The VBS theme song is really, really cool. The boys and girls are going to love it. But we sing it in here on Sunday morning sometimes as well. And I'm going to read some of the verses of, of this song to you. And then we're going to kind of end it with a little bit of a singing part. It says, when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. And he goes on and says, and if you are for me, who can be against me? Yeah, for Jesus, there's nothing impossible for you. When all I see are the ashes, you see the beauty. Thank you, God, because when all I see is a cross, God, you see the empty tomb. An almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows, you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. And there's this chorus. And I'd like for you to sing with me if you can. And hopefully we can play it. And it goes like this. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. I'll sing through the night. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. Just think about that battle. We all have a battle that we all face. The battle of sin. Right? We all struggle with it. None of us are perfect. Jesus came down to battle that sin for you and for me. He came to take that punishment of sin up on the cross so that his body could take our sins away from it. And that blood that was poured out for us could wash away our sins and make us clean and holy so that we could have a relationship with God and live with him for eternity. Jesus is the ultimate person who conquered our biggest battle. But he didn't just stay in the grave. Instead, he resurrected from that grave and came to life so that we could truly see that he is God. He is all-powerful, but he is also all-loving. 